Let's turn in the scriptures to the last book of the Old Testament, which is the prophecy of Malachi. One of the things that we have been learning in this study of the book of the Twelve is that God reveals himself profoundly in these unfamiliar books. And we, as humans, are made for God. We're made by him and for him. Just like calories fuel our bodies, and just like some calories are more substantive than other calories, our lives run best, our lives are fueled best on an accurate knowledge of God. We're made to know God. And studying how he's revealed himself in the scriptures fuels us. And I hope to wrap that up well today as I conclude this study of the Book of the Twelve. This section of scripture is also known as the Minor Prophets. Of course, I've pointed out numerous times that they're called minor simply because the lengths of their writings are shorter. And uh, they're shorter compared to bigger prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. The entirety of the book of the 12 is about the size of Isaiah. That's why they're called the minor prophets. Now this scripture section, this portion of scripture is the least familiar, I think, in the Bible. And I hope that the time we've spent here the last few months in the book of the 12 has actually wiped the dust of this portion of scripture away and helped us to see that there are invaluable, priceless treasures here, ways that we need to understand and know our God that will fuel our lives day to day. Malachi, of course, is the 12th in this book of the 12. Probably would have pronounced his name Malachi, something like that, Malachi. In in Israel, back in the day, you probably would have pronounced it a little different from us. He spoke his messages in Jerusalem about 500 years after the kingdom was at its height under David and Solomon. Long time after the United Kingdom of David and Solomon. He spoke his message over 400 years after the kingdom split. He spoke his message nearly 300 years after the northern kingdom was decimated by Assyria. He spoke his message nearly 150 years after the southern kingdom was decimated by Babylon. In fact, the two previous prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, the previous two in the prophets, in the, in the minor prophets, they preached a good 80 years before Malachi. They were preaching at the time that the, the return was just beginning to Jerusalem and the temple was like the first major project of rebuilding in the city. That was 80 years before Malachi speaks. And uh, the temple was finished a long time before. There are a couple other books in in the Old Testament that take place right around this time, and that's Esther and Nehemiah. And actually, Malachi speaks just a few years after Nehemiah leads in the rebuilding of Jerusalem's wall. So Jerusalem has been being rebuilt for decades now and through Malachi, through Malachi, God confronts the people of Jerusalem again. After God speaks through Malachi, 
significantly, no word of scripture is given for almost four centuries until King Jesus arrives. He is the last of the prophets in the Old Testament. Today I want to do two things. I want to read and summarize Malachi, and then I want to review the entire book of the Twelve. That's like the two parts of today's message. We're going to read through Malachi, summarize it very briefly, and then review what we've learned about our great God from the Twelve. Now, just before we read through portions of Malachi, I want to make just one overall observation, and this is really introducing the reading and even the structure of this last prophet. The observation is that there is strong indication from this book of the Twelve that the fact that these books have always been a single book, the fact that the minor prophets have always been one single Hebrew scroll that would have been called the Twelve, The fact that they're all together makes a very strong case that they are historically genuine and trustworthy. They're a single book that has remarkable variety. And all I can do is just overview the variety. I can't go into any detail. They are varied in what we know about each author. Every book starts differently, right? Some of them we know genealogical data. Others we know none, like Malachi. They're, they're, they're extremely varied in, in the, uh, the time in which they spoke, as the, the chart shows. They're speaking their messages over about 400 years. They're extremely varied in the length of their writings. For example, Zechariah is like eight times the size of Obadiah. There's no consistency in the length of the books. And I think this is strong indication of their authenticity, that they weren't somehow made up or severely edited by by an individual much later who was trying to make them all consistent with each other. They're extremely varied. And I want to point out one more variable in introducing Malachi. It's this. These 12 prophets are remarkably varied in their form. Hosea is an autobiographical prophecy. His marriage is the prophecy. Wow, that's an interesting way to speak to people. Joel speaks in poems. Jonah is a historical narrative. The only one in the minor prophets. Habakkuk complains and then sings. Habakkuk 3 is a song. (laughs) Interesting. Zechariah records dreams. Malachi, the book we study today, responds to questions, almost like in a courtroom. He hears accusations that the people are making against God, and he renders a verdict on each accusation. It's really interesting the variety of forms through which God speaks to his people. And that's what I want to start with as I read through Malachi today. I want to start through these eight accusations that God responds to. It's going to be the flow of our reading today. If you're looking at Malachi 1, look at verse 1. This is the oracle or the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi 
I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, and here's their first of eight accusations, how have you loved us? You might say, yeah, God, it really looks like love to me. Look what you've done to our lives. You really call this love? That's the, that's the feel of this accusation. How have you loved us? And he responds by reminding them that he chose them. He chose them to forever bless them. He says it like this, Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I've loved Jacob, but Esau have I hated. I chose to bless Jacob and not Esau. And God assures his people that he's going to make the descendants of Esau, known as the Edomites, these would have been arch enemies of Israel throughout their history, I am going to make them weaker and weaker, and they will never conquer you again, my people. That's what he says. He says in verse 5, Your own eyes shall see this, and you will say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. The Lord is going to dig deeper into their accusations, into the people's controversies with him. Look at verse 6. He starts, A son honors his father, and a servant honors his master. If I then am your father, where is my honor? And if I am your master, where is my respect? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest who despise his name. But you say, we might call this talking back number two. This is accusation number two. The people talk back. God, are you really saying we've dishonored you? God answers, yeah. You've offered polluted food on my altar. And they talk back again a third time. But you say, how have we polluted you? And God answers by saying that the Lord's table may be despised. And the rest of this chapter really explains how the people were in a habit of bringing the worst of their animals to the Lord to offer us sacrifices. This was explicit disobedience based on what God had said in the law. You were to bring the best. You were to bring the animals without blemish. God was teaching people ultimately what Jesus would be like. That Jesus wasn't like God just throwing some trash to the world. Jesus was the very best. The son without spot. The one without sin. And so God establishes the law to bring sacrifices that are of the best. And yet the people are bringing animal sacrifices that are blind, lame, hurt, blemished in some way. God says in verse 10, I wish you'd just close the doors to the temple. Whoa. He says, I wish that you would close the doors to the temple rather than dishonoring me with your mangy gifts. And he says three times at the end of the chapter, at the end of chapter one, that he's going to defend his reputation. He's going to defend his honor. Look at verse 11. From the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. End of the verse. My name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Look at the last statement of the chapter in verse 14. And my reputation will be respected among the nations. I don't think anyone realized in Malachi's day how awesome God would fulfill this prophecy. 
the fulfillment would be awesome. Not only would people from every nation be convinced that Israel's God is the one true God, but people from every nation would experience the salvation of this one true God so that people of every nation, tribe, and tongue would be with the Lord forever in a blessed creation praising the Lamb who saved them. It's not just that they'll recognize that Israel's God is the one true God. They will experience his blessings. They will be saved by him. Wow. Now you can see that the people in Jerusalem to whom Malachi spoke were accusing God. It's as if he's in a courtroom and he's just point for point responding to their accusations. And in chapter 2, this keeps up. He's confronting the priests with how they're disobeying, how they're receiving all of these blemished sacrifices. And he says, this is so unlike the way your ancestors, priests would have been from the tribe of Levi, that's the, the son of Jacob, Levi is the son of Jacob. So many years before, over a thousand years before, their ancestor, the priest's ancestor Levi, when, you remember this incident when at, at Mount Sinai, Moses is up receiving the law and the people are down having this horrible sexual orgy around a golden calf? Who is it that stands up for God's reputation and says this is wrong and they execute God's judgment on the nation of Israel? It's, it's Levi. It's the tribe of Levi. And here at the beginning of chapter 2, God basically says, you used to care about my honor. And he says, not so much now. And he goes on. He says, look at verse 11. He says, you men in Jerusalem, the, the men of Judah, you've married women who are worshiping idols. God was not concerned about marrying foreigners, right? Rahab and Ruth testify to this. He's always been concerned about his people who believe in him marrying unbelievers or idolaters, those who have a different faith than their own. He confronts them for marrying women who worshiped idols, but it gets worse. He says in verse 13 that he no longer cares about their worship. And in verse 14, they talk back. Why don't you accept our worship anymore? God replies, because I was a witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you've been faithless, though she's your companion and your wife by covenant. In other words, based on these couple verses here in the middle of chapter 2, it's not simply that the people in Malachi's day in Jerusalem had married idolaters. It's that they had divorced in order to do so. They had divorced women who were trusting the Lord, apparently, who understood that marriage was a covenant, and they were divorcing and then marrying women who were idolaters. One of the clearest indicators of faithful commitment to God is faithful commitment to your spouse. Old Testament and new. What you do with sexuality is one of the clearest indicators of whether you trust God or not. I mean, if you look at Paul in the New Testament, Colossians 3, he talks about what it means to be united with Jesus, and then he goes after two issues. How you talk and how self-controlled you are sexually. 
Same thing is true in the Old Testament. Sexual self-control reveals, it indicates your commitment to God. God says again in verse 17 that he's tired of his people's complaints, and they complain again a fifth time. How have we exhausted you, God? And he says, because everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. That's what you say. And you think that God delights in them. Or you say, summarizing it, where is this God of justice? So these hypocritical people who are bringing the worst of their sacrifices, they're engaging in sexual immorality by unjust divorce and then remarriage to people that God has forbidden them to, to, to marry. These hypocritical people keep throwing at God, this world is all messed up. They keep throwing at God the problem of evil, that there's so much injustice in the world. And they're using this as an excuse for why they can't follow God today. The exact same thing still happens today. There is a problem of evil. And the Bible wrestles with it a lot, like in Habakkuk and in Job and in Psalm 73. And I could multiply that list. The Bible knows about the problem of evil, and God addresses it repeatedly. And in the end, we simply have to trust that the glory of God is going to, in eternity, make sense of the problem of evil. We have to trust God. But these people, like many, many people in our day, are using the problem of evil saying, oh, there's so much injustice in the world, there's so much wrong in the world, therefore I can't trust God. And it's their excuse to live however they want. Mm. What's shocking is what we've seen in every one of these prophets is what God's about to do. Look at what God's about to do. Chapter 3, monumental promise. Behold, I send my messenger. He's going to prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he's coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire, like a fuller's soap. That would be like a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He'll purify the priest's and refine them like gold and silver, and they'll bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. What God does with these sinful, hypocritical people that keep saying, God, the problem's with you, he promises to fix them. He promises to be gracious to them. This, of course, beginning of chapter 3, is a promise that is wonderfully fulfilled when God sends Jesus preceded by John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the messenger. He is confirmed in the New Testament as the messenger of Malachi 3.1. And immediately after John the Baptist comes saying, the Lord's about to appear, King Jesus is revealed. In Jesus' first coming, he provided for our cleansing by his crucifixion. And at that very time, the moment of Jesus' crucifixion, he replaced the temple. 
That's why the curtain that marked the holiest place was torn in two, because Jesus was now the one through whom people would meet with God. You don't need to go to a certain place on planet Earth to meet with God. You need to trust Jesus, the one whom that place was always pointing ahead toward. Jesus replaced the temple. He came to the temple. He cleansed the temple. He made an offering for sin. He rendered the temple unnecessary. And he promises to cleanse from guilt anyone who trusts him. Wow, that's what he did in his first coming. What grace. Now, this promise in Malachi 3 has portions of it which are yet to be fulfilled, right? In his second coming, he is going to purify this earth of sinners so that after he returns, there will be no more sin on planet earth. He is going to rid the world of filth. He is going to cleanse and purify it. We are commanded to submit to him while there's still time. Now God explains very powerfully in verse 6 of chapter 3 the reason that this fickle nation has not been obliterated. You say, why in the world is he still promising grace after centuries and centuries of perpetual failure? Why is he still promising grace? Verse 3 says, it's because the Lord himself doesn't change. He remains faithful to his promises. And then the Lord issues the classic command of the prophets in verse 7, return to me and I will return to you. That's how our service is going to end today. As Allie and Lydia sing again here, concluding the Minor Prophets series, we need to return to the Lord. He says, return to me and I'll return to you. But the people immediately talk back, don't they? How can we return? They probably mean, what are we doing that's so bad that would make it necessary for us to be reconciled to you? Why is there any need for us to return in the first place? That's the, that's the gist of their question. And God says in verse 8, you need to stop robbing me. And they immediately respond, how are we stealing from you? They talk back again, again for the seventh time. God explains, well, you're not tithing. That was paying a tenth of their income to support the priests in the temple. And God promises to bless them if they'll give the first portion of their income to him like they're commanded. They're engaged in direct disobedience. And then, for the last time, the people talk back to God in verse 13 as he confronts their accusations. They ask, how have we accused you? Yeah, that's the exact right response. They're full of accusations. Starting with, do you really love us, God? And then repeatedly saying, God, the problem's with you. You're judging us, but you're misjudging us. We don't have any problems. It's your judgment that's the problem. This book is loaded with the people's accusations, and the whole time they've been slandering God. And now they say, how are we slandering you? (laughs) And so God confronts them again. What's remarkable is if you look at chapter 3, verse 16, it says that many people responded by respecting the Lord. They feared the Lord. That verse also says that this day of repentance was monumental, so monumental that a book was written 
A journal was written about it, recording what happened on that day so that the people who responded rightly to the Lord had their names recorded in a book. And verse 17, God assures them that the people who decisively turned to him and submitted their lives, they turned from the the disobedience of their past and they said, God, we are going to commit ourselves to following you and following your word. Those people, verse 17, would be protected from judgment. When God's judgment falls, they would be protected. And the last bit, the little chapter 4, the last bit of Malachi's prophecy is a description of that day of judgment. For behold, chapter 4, verse 1, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that's coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings, and you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. The day of judgment is coming. Be sobered by it. The only ones who will be ready for that day are those who fear God, those who submit themselves to him and embrace the cleansing that he offers through the Lord whom he sent to his temple. I think the son of righteousness here should probably be capitalized. I think it's a reference to Jesus, to the messenger of the covenant that was sent who was announced and then the Lord appeared in the temple. I think it's the same individual. And I think Jesus described as the son of righteousness indicates that he's the one who will shine the warmth and the joy of all of God's blessings, all of his promised blessings. Jesus is going to shine it on everyone who submits to him. And he's going to rescue us from every bit of darkness and pain that we experience now. He is the son of righteousness, and we are going to experience quick healing when we are finally in his presence. Oh, for that day. Wow, that's Malachi. That's God revealing himself through this prophet. Through Malachi, the 12th, in the book of the 12, God reveals himself as the faithful lover of his perpetually unfaithful people. Even though they deserve the curse for their selfishness and for their arrogant accusations against him, he remains committed to purifying and to forever blessing everyone who returns to him. That's why I'd state the message of Malachi. God reveals himself as the faithful lover. I'm the one who doesn't change You may divorce your wives and disobey me, but I'm going to be faithful to you. You don't deserve it, but I've committed myself to you, and I'm going to remain committed. That's our God. He reveals himself as the faithful lover of his perpetually unfaithful people. Even though they deserve the curse for their selfishness and arrogance, he remains committed to purifying and forever blessing all who turn to him. What a powerful message. What a climactic, conclusive message. And we say, what grace. Throughout Israel's history, they kept showing themselves to be like Adam and Eve, right? Distrusting God. 
suspecting God of wanting the worst for them, disobeying God, thinking that they would find happiness outside of living for him. And we are no different. But God isn't different either. He hasn't changed over 2,500 years. God is still a God of justice. And everyone who resists him will face it. And he is still a God of grace. And his grace is as certain today as when he spoke these words through Malachi. If you submit to Jesus, if you submit to Jesus, even though you deserve to be cursed by God, God will forever bless you. Because Jesus is the one who took the curse in our place when he was crucified. This is the message of the Bible. Jesus took our sin and all of our condemnation that we deserve. This is the message of the Bible. And if you follow Jesus, you will be protected from ever facing God's judgment. But you will have to turn. You'll have to say something like what I think verse 16, chapter 3, verse 16 of Malachi implies when it says that the people finally after the eighth accusation and response, they finally feared the Lord. I think you're going to have to do the same thing. You're going to have to say, God, I'm going to stop accusing you. The problem's not with you, God. The problem's with me. And I can make up excuse after excuse after excuse but they won't stand up in court. God, I'm going to stop accusing you of wronging me. And I'm going to submit my life to you. I'm going to admit that I'm the one who hasn't been living like I was made to live. And you're going to have to respect the Lord, submit to him, turn, return to him, and you'll be reconciled to him. That's a brief reading and summary of Malachi. We encounter God through it. And I believe that this kind of food is the best kind of calorie for our lives to run on. And what I'm going to do in the last few minutes we have is just do a quick review, hopefully a bit of a snowball effect of the book of the 12. I want to end today reviewing how we have seen God through these 12 books. You might remember that Hosea's marriage was a powerful prophecy. He married a woman who would repeatedly cheat on him. And that profoundly pictured what it was like for God to be committed to Israel, who was like a serial adulteress. We learned from Hosea's life and lips that God severely judges our unfaithfulness, but he himself remains faithful because he is a jealous husband. And God, we learned from Hosea 11, he will one day call his son out of Egypt and through his son forgive and change the hearts of everyone who repents so that their hearts will be faithfully devoted to him. Hosea's promises ultimately turn on Jesus. They focus on Jesus. You might say Hosea is, uh, is pronounced something like Hoshanya, and then you have Yoel, 
We know him as Joel. Hosea was speaking his message to the northern kingdom. Joel was speaking his to the southern kingdom. That southern kingdom had recently experienced a locust devastation, right? And Joel warned that the nation would experience as much devastation as the north did. They would experience more decimation than just a locust plague if they didn't return from their their rebellion. And that ended up happening a few centuries later when the southern kingdom fell. But Joel isn't just focused on the immediate future of Babylon decimating Israel. He announces, this is how I summarize the book, that history will climax with God's judgment of all nations who are opposed to him. And until then, every little devastation on earth should be like a wake-up call to turn from our rebellion and fully devote ourselves to God. Joel assures that anyone and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So God is not only the judge, the vindicator. He's the one who can restore everything that the locusts have eaten away. What great hope there is. After Joel, you have Amos. Probably would have been said, Nyamos. And he focuses on God as the mighty judge. He's Orion's maker. Every time you see that constellation, that archer constellation in the sky, you should think not that Orion's great, but whoever made Orion is greater. And Amos preached that the Lord's just judgment will fall on those who live selfishly and hypocritically unless they turn and submit to his chosen king, who's from the line of David, that is Jesus. Obadiah is the fourth prophet. I think you probably would say it, something like that. He announced God's coming judgment on Edom, and he preached that although the enemies of God's people seem strong today, even though they seem to be winning now, God will eventually rule as king on earth. The Lord is the coming king. And it was at the end of that message in December, you may remember, that we stood and listened to the hallelujah chorus that echoes the last words of Obadiah. The kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Our Lord is the coming king on this planet. Fifth, we have Jonah, or Jonah, like we say. It was especially through Jonah's hard-heartedness and hatred of the Ninevites that God revealed himself in this book as the fountainhead of grace, right? Jonah wanted God's enemies, the Ninevites, to be executed, but God desired them to, to repent because he wanted to show them grace. Jonah As a whole, this book teaches us that God wants to, he desires to relent from executing his judgment on all who repent, no matter who they are or what they've done, including people as wicked as the Ninevites. Jonah wanted the people to die. God wanted them to live. He's eager to not destroy people. Wow. God's heart is surging with grace. We learn it from Jonah. Sixth, Micah, or Micah. His message emphasized that God's just judgment is going to fall on the rebel world, but he's going to save a remnant and bless people 
of every nation through his Bethlehem-born king. All because he is the source of mercy. God is mercy's source. He's the God who delights in showing steadfast love and mercy. Nahum. Nahum. He spoke about God's coming judgment on Assyria. And he revealed that the Lord is the fierce fortress. Right? He said very early on in Nahum 1 that for those who rebel against the Lord, he will bring fierce judgment. And yet, according to verse 7, he is the fortress in the day of distress for any who take refuge in him. Our God is a fierce fortress. Habakkuk. 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 That's how we say it, right? He was primarily concerned with God's justice. Like Habakkuk, many since him and many before him, it seems like the worst people in the world are the most powerful. And God spoke through him that even though injustice seems everywhere now, God will eventually bring justice on earth. Right now, he calls everyone to live by faith, waiting with joy until he fulfills his promises. I think of all these studies, our study in Habakkuk was the most stabilizing for me personally. Our God is a solid foundation for our faith, no matter how bad things are right now. Ninth, we go to Zephaniah, or as we say, Zephaniah. He spoke around the same time as Habakkuk, and he spoke actually something similar to Joel. Joel said the locust plague was a preview, but Zephaniah said what God did to overthrow southern Israel was a preview of what he will eventually do to the whole world. Those who humbly repent will be shielded from God's wrath and experience the celebration after sadness. Zephaniah experienced, he he prophesied of God who will one day live among his people and lead the singing celebration of his people in a perfectly remade creation. Haggai, or we would probably say if we were Hebrew, Haggai, Haggai. He spoke long after the decimation of Jerusalem, and he was the first. Zechariah was the second to encourage the rebuilding of the temple. He was speaking to a generation, picking up the pieces, right? And he revealed the God as the one who gives strength, right? He teaches that all who live for themselves and neglect God will face dissatisfaction now. And judgment forever. But those who reconsider their priorities and submit to Jesus will be blessed with God's presence now and his honor forever. Hmm. Zechariah then revealed God as the pierced victor. Zechariah. His messages are the longest and most climactic. And through him, God promised his people total cleansing from their sin, total transformation from their selfishness, total rescue from their enemies, total recreation, all through his chosen king, Jesus. He would be from the line of David. He would also be a priest. He would be himself the Lord of hosts, the Lord of angel armies. He would be the afflicted shepherd. He would be the pierced victor. Do you see this theme? 
Fear the Lord. You will face his judgment if you do not submit to him. If you do not live for the purpose for which you're made, fear. He will bring judgment on this earth. They also stress that God's grace is massive. He is ready to forgive. He's eager to forgive. He desires to forgive. He delights to forgive. It doesn't matter if you're Jonah. It doesn't matter if you live in Jerusalem. It doesn't matter if you're the Ninevites. He loves to forgive those who submit to him. This is our God. Mm. I end here. A few weeks ago, I was listening to a Christian counselor teach through the life of Joseph. And he pointed out that Joseph endured so many hardships in life because early on in his life, God had given him two messages. He was given a dream that his life was like a sheaf, a a bundle of wheat. And his brothers, who were also represented by bundles, bowed before him. And then he was given another dream that he was a star. And even the sun and moon, representing his parents, were bowing down to him. God gave Joseph two dreams. And that sustained Joseph through cruelty, through temptation. He resisted the temptations of Potiphar's wife. It sustained him through imprisonment, being forgotten. It didn't just sustain him. It allowed Joseph to actually forgive his brothers, resist temptation, and actually be a responsible prisoner. He worked responsibly. And this counselor made the observation, with all of God's word that we have today, compared to what Joseph had in his day, we Christians should be the most stable people on the planet. We've just read over the last couple months about 80 pages of the scripture. The Minor Prophets, the Book of the Twelve. And in this portion of scripture, God has repeatedly assured us that he will be faithful to every one of his promises. He has repeatedly assured us that his chosen king will rid the world of all who don't submit to him. That his chosen king will rescue those who do submit to him from every shred of the curse. And his chosen king will lead all who submit to him in experiencing the joy of the kingdom forever. Repeated, repeated, repeated. And I would just say, no matter what we're dealing with today or what we might deal with tomorrow, we of all people should be the most stable on the planet. God has spoken. Let's anchor and stabilize our lives in what he has revealed.